You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. in San Francisco and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, Musk may have a whistleblower on his side. Twitter's former head of security has come forward alleging there are egregious deficiencies, quote unquote, in how the company handles personal data and doesn't even know how many bots there are. U.S. lawmakers have vowed to investigate how this plays into the $44 billion lawsuit. Plus, Zoom's transition from an essential pandemic tool to an enterprise business juggernaut might take longer than expected. The company reported the lowest sales gain in its history. Zoom's CFO joins us this hour. And Meta learned about the FTC's lawsuit over its Within VR acquisition via a tweet. Could this be the new norm under Chair Lena Khan? Twitter's former head of security blowing the whistle. His name is Peter Zatko. He's filed an official complaint alleging egregious deficiencies in the way the platform handles personal data and bot accounts. Twitter refuting the claims, calling them opportunistic. How could this change Elon Musk's attempt to get out of that $44 billion deal? Musk's lawyers, as Katie said, have already subpoenaed Zatko. There's a hearing scheduled for Wednesday here to discuss Bloomberg's Jeff Feely, who covers the courts of Delaware for us, and our own Kurt Wagner, who covers Twitter. So, Kurt, who is Peter Zatko and what has he claimed? Yeah, this is someone who's incredibly well-respected in the security industry. He came to Twitter in late 2020. You may remember, Emily, that in the summer of that year, there was a big breach at the company. A bunch of very high-profile accounts were hacked by a teenager. And Jack Dorsey, then the CEO, you know, made a big uh, uh, plan to bring someone in with some real kind of reputation and, and stock in the industry. And so his you know, goes by Mudge is his nickname. And he was there until early this this year, 2022, when he was actually fired or dismissed by CEO Prague Agarwal. So very recently in the building at Twitter. So he was there very recently, uh, Twitter responding to his claims saying, um, this is from the, the CEO Prague Agarwal, I believe you obtained this memo. They're reviewing the claims, but what they've seen so far is a false narrative right. riddled with inconsistencies and inaccuracies, inaccuracies and presented without important context. Give us more details on what he is claiming. 
Yeah. I mean, he's, he's essentially saying that the company has not taken the appropriate steps to protect user data. He's saying that they haven't taken appropriate steps to update you know, basic software on their data servers, right? Uh, and the big thing, and this is the thing that you know, Elon Musk is, is jumping on, is that he says, well, the company doesn't actually know how many bots uh, it has on the platform, right? It's a little bit more nuanced than that. We can get into that. But generally, you know, when you hear that and you're Elon Musk, your ears perk up because this is what you have been arguing all along, is that the company doesn't actually know how many bots it has. And here is a top senior executive who reported to the CEO, essentially reaffirming what Elon's been saying. So, Jeff, Musk's lawyers have already said, we want to talk to this guy. How could this potentially change the case? What's going to happen in this hearing? Well, first and foremost, let's let's stop for a second and say that it's way too early to know whether this guy's got the goods or not. Uh, you know, people are going to have to dig in and see, you know, whether there's meat on the bone for these allegations. Now, tomorrow is not about uh, the, the this guy. It's about allegations that the Musk people have made that the Twitter folks are hiding uh, witnesses with specific knowledge of the spam and the bot accounts, and they're offering up, you know, executives and directors who don't have specific knowledge. Judge is going to decide whether or not Twitter has to make, you know, the people with the, the goods available. So, Kurt, I know you've been talking to a lot of sources. There's been some reaction from within the company. Yeah. What are people saying? Yeah, I mean, there's a number of current employees who you can imagine aren't very thrilled, right, to see someone who was so recently on the staff level at the company now coming forward and making these accusations. There's been a lot of speculation as to the timing, right? I mean, we are right in the middle of this very contentious deal, and suddenly this feels like a huge uh, wrapped gift for Elon Musk. So there has been speculation there as well. But, you know, ultimately this just adds even more kind of chaos and confusion to what's already been a very uncertain time at a company like this. Jeff, how often does it happen that, you know, someone comes forward claiming to have, you know, the smoking gun, you know, at the perfect time in a high-profile business case like this? It has happened before in a case called Acorn Fresenius. Um, so it's not unusual to have whistleblowers emerge when there's publicity about these big M&A fights. And it's just, you know, everything has been, you know, drama central in this case. So it's not a bit surprising that we've had so, this development. So what are we, what are you watching for? What happens next? Well, again, we have this hearing tomorrow, uh, which will decide whether or not he gets more access to the bot stuff. Uh, going forward, uh, we're basically keeping an eye on the process of gathering ammunition. Both sides are gathering ammunition to make their case. And we're hurtling toward October 17th, the huge, you know, trial of the century in Wilmington, Delaware. You are going to be very busy that day, my friend, along with our own Kurt Wagner. Thank that you both for giving week, us <laughs> that week, I should say. Thank you both. Obviously, you'll keep us posted on the drama. All right. Coming up, HBO gets a huge win with House of the Dragon. Just how good an omen is this for streamers? We'll discuss next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. 
Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. The Game of Thrones fan club was in the house Sunday for House of the Dragon. The premiere drew 9.9 million viewers on television and online, making it the best ever series debut in HBO history. It's becoming a battle of epics between HBO and Amazon, which is about to debut its Lord of the Rings spinoff, The Rings of Power. Joining me now, Rich Greenfield, partner at Lightshed Partner. So House of the Dragon, Rich, what did you think? I mean, this is sort of, this is what HBO does best. I mean, big, epic, super expensive, tens of millions of dollars an episode. But this is the bread and butter of HBO. And I think the the big question for investors is going to be, how does this evolve over the course of the next 12 months? Obviously, as you know, Emily, Warner Media was acquired by Discovery, or essentially the companies came together into a merger. And at some point next summer, Discovery Plus is going to basically be, you know, mashed together with HBO Max, probably still called HBO Max. And we're going to see sort of how those two brands come together into one service. But I think when you look at something like House of, of, of the Dragon, this is this is everything that HBO is known for over the last 20 years. You know, incredibly well-produced, high-end, premium content. Well, we're already seeing some of those growing pains as this, uh, you know, discovery tries to merge these two cultures. What's your expectations about how it's all going to play out? I mean, look, you've got a company. You know, the, the reality is for Discovery, this was a save, right? I mean, Discovery did not have a future as a standalone company. They were going to be in deep trouble just being in the cable network world, uh, especially in the nonfiction sort of. That world was not going to look pretty over the course of the next five to ten years. And I don't think anyone really believed in the future of Discovery+. Plus. And so because AT&T needed to get out of the Warner Media business, it sort of is this, you know, really unique opportunity for for sort of a kick save for John Malone and David Zaslav to sort of wind up being in control of one of the world's largest media companies. The negative is they have a lot of debt, and so that's why you're seeing sort of a lot of cost-cutting and a lot of sort of retrenchment strategically. But I think the question is going to be, this is an incredible group of assets, and how much of their focus is on 
building for the future. There's no doubt in my mind that the future of television is going to be streamed, right? Like linear TV is dying. And so how does WarnerMedia, which still has a tremendous amount of cable network, you know, broadcast cable network assets, how do they transform that into the future? And can they do it with that much debt load? Obviously, you're seeing a lot of investors who are skeptical of their prospects so far. Does the success of House of the Dragon bode well for Amazon's Lord of the Rings project and all the money and time that they spent on it? Well, well I think it's, it's funny that you bring up uh, Lord of the Rings because it's actually a great example of the different strategy that you're now seeing at Warner Media, or sorry, at Warner Brothers Discovery, I should say, versus the old management team. Because if you go today, Emily, or if any of the viewers who are watching this turn on Amazon's you know, Prime Video, they can actually watch all of the original Lord of the Rings. Now, you'd say the original Lord of the Rings, those are Warner Brothers. Those should be on HBO Max. And they're on HBO Max, but they're now also on Amazon's Prime Video. So you see this culture now that's really changing inside of Warner Media, where instead of making it the exclusive home of content, they're really going back to more of a licensing model where, sure, it's on HBO Max, but now you can also get it on Amazon Prime, whereas that never would have happened under the prior management team. You're seeing a real focus on licensing to generate profits versus the only sort of North Star was streaming, meaning HBO Max. HBO Max is no longer the sole focus of Warner Brothers Discovery. They're looking to make money any way possible, including licensing to third parties like Amazon. We're also seeing these streamers make more moves into sports. News today that Amazon is going to show its Thursday night football in bars and restaurants as part of a, its deal with DirecTV. And, you know, you talked about, you know, for the first time ever, there being more viewers on streaming than on cable. Is sports really the only way to take these streamers to the next level, to that next generation or chapter of growth? Well, look, sports is a great way to get people to come in, right? If you have Champions League, which is what Paramount Plus just acquired, it's the only way you can watch Champions League is you've got to sign up for Paramount Plus. If you want to watch WWE's WrestleMania, you have to have Peacock. You know, if you, you know, each of these... Uh, platforms is buying exclusive sports rights. Now, the the negative is is obviously you can't you don't own these you don't own the content. You have to keep fighting every three, five, seven, whatever the years are. You have to keep fighting for this content because you don't own it the way you own a piece of content. You know, Netflix owns Stranger Things forever. Like it's not disappearing. They don't have to go rebid for those rights in three years. So sports is a really a double-edged sword. But I think what's interesting, Emily, is it's the last thing that's been holding the bundle together. Like right now, you can't name an entertainment show on traditional television that anyone cares about. The only thing that's sort of holding the sport, the, the traditional multi-channel video bundle together has been sports. And even now, sports are finally starting to move to streaming. And I think that's why you've seen a record pace of cord cutting, 7 8% now. Cord cutting is becoming a real problem for all of these legacy media companies because they've moved so much great content, including sports, to streaming. And the tech companies are coming in and bidding on these sports rights. You know, we think the big next thing you're going to see in the next four weeks, we believe Apple's going to buy Sunday Ticket which has been on direct tv for years we think that moves over to apple and so you're seeing real massive seismic change 
that is going to have big problems for anybody in the cable network business in 2023. Now, I know you're a prolific tweeter, and we were speaking earlier about this whistleblower that's come forward that could potentially give Elon Musk an edge in this battle royale to get out of that $44 billion deal to buy Twitter. What's your take? You know, it comes down to essentially one fundamental issue is did Twitter falsify its public filings? Because the deal that Elon Musk agreed to didn't talk about bots or the percentage of bots or any of that. It basically just relied on the validity of Twitter's public filings. And if you read Twitter's public filings, it says, you know, we make a lot of assumptions in how we look at the bot number. We think it's under 5%, but we could be wrong. If Twitter knowingly knew the number was far larger than 5% and every one of Twitter's filings was essentially fraudulent because they were basically filing fraudulent documents with the SEC, then Musk has a case. Now, I find it hard to believe that Jack Dorsey and Ned Siegel and sort of the entire management team at Twitter has willfully for years been filing false SEC documents. It's obviously possible. I think it's unlikely. Unless those documents, unless those filings with the SEC are knowingly false, Twitter has already said they could have bad mistakes in how they did this. It's the, this is not an exact science. If that's the case, Elon will be paying 5420. Right. And to be clear, we're talking about the number of bots that advertisers uh, that, that, that actually see advertising that are counted at MAUs, not the number of bots overall. Um, that's what they're sure. referring to with that 5%, less than 5% number. Correct. It's, there are certainly good bots that are part of Twitter that you actually would want there. But in terms of sort of the, the spammy part that shouldn't be counted as actually, um, you know, monetizable DAUs, as Twitter calls them, MDAUs is actually the term Twitter uses. It, right. they, they have said repeatedly that the percentage of bots on a quarterly basis is sub 5% based on their analysis, but that analysis could be flawed you would have to believe that they knowingly knew, I mean, they factually knew the number was north of 5% and chose to do different disclosure in the SEC filings. That's the only way Musk gets out of paying 54.20. Right, right. Okay, Rich Greenfield, Lightshed Partners. Thanks Always for having good me. to have you here, Rich. Thank you for stopping by. Zoom was the pandemic's golden child, but that transition from an essential COVID-era tool to an enterprise business platform may not happen as quickly as some expected. Let's talk about all that and more with Zoom CFO Kelly Steckelberg here. Kelly, great to have you back with us. So let's talk about the good news and the less good news. Uh, obviously, you're, you're seeing growth from enterprise customers, but you're losing consumers and small businesses. Let's start there. When, how, and where do you expect that to stabilize? So great to see you, Emily. Thank you. Um, as you mentioned, we're really pleased with the performance in the enterprise, which grew 27% year over year. You can talk about Zoom phone and the very strong performance there. But in our online segment of the business, as you mentioned, there certainly were some headwinds, a lot of it due to strength in the dollar as well as impact that we're seeing from the war in the Europe but also just slower acquisition of new customers at the top of the funnel, which is having impact as people are moving around the world again and going out to happy hour with their friends rather than doing that over Zoom. 
And slowing sales growth among corporate customers, is that a sign of slowing corporate demand? Is that because of the, the macroeconomic issues we're seeing? So we had a very strong quarter from an enterprise perspective. Our Overall bookings came in stronger than we expected and revenue at 27%. Now we are starting to see our enterprise sales cycles moving towards more normalized enterprise cycles, which meant they were a little bit more back end loaded in the quarter. That led to higher than expected deferred revenue though, just a little bit less contribution to revenue in the quarter itself. But Zoom phone was very strong performance. We crossed over that 4 million seat mark in August, which we're excited to talk about. We had two record deals with seat size of greater than 125,000, and we're seeing strength in some of our new products, including Zoom Contact Center and Zoom IQ for Sales. Bigger picture, there's this narrative that the pendulum is swinging back to the office. Apple calling workers back to the office next month. Employees are pushing back, yes, uh, but. You know, this is still the policy, at least as of now. I know Zoom did its own survey on hybrid work. Uh, you found that executives still want that hybrid work environment. How are you adding all of this up and trying to figure out how this will translate into demand? Yeah. So the great thing about Zoom technology is it enables work both at home and in the office, and they're both really important. So. We see organizations recognizing that they need to maintain their Zoom licenses for their employees that are working at home, but also our technology like Zoom rooms, smart gallery, workplace reservations, allow them to then interact with those employees that are in the office in a very inclusive way. And so having the right technology in your conference room is becoming more and more important every single day. We've all become used to seeing everybody's face on a square, and so technology like Smart Gallery enables that even if you're the one like me who I've moved out of the state of California sitting in Texas sees everybody that's in that room and feels really included in that conversation. And so we're excited about the prospects of hybrid work and Zoom technology is there to support it. So just about 30 seconds left Kelly. What does the next year of growth look like to you? Where does most of that growth come from quickly? So certainly it's going to come from our enterprise segment and we're also focused on lots of new initiatives in the online segment that will drive it first to being flat, but eventually a growth driver as well. All right, Kelly Steckelberg, CFO of Zoom. Always good to have you here, Kelly. Thank you for stopping by. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. The FTC is breaking with tradition and it's clamped down on big tech. Meta says it learned that the Federal Trade Commission was suing the company over its within virtual reality acquisition via a tweet. The FTC typically gives companies a chance to meet with commissioners and argue their case before filing a lawsuit. Here to explain what happened, our very own Alex Barinka. What happened indeed, Alex? Yeah, um, Meta executives and lawyers apparently found out um, from this tweet that the FTC was suing them in kind of an unusual case that I'm sure we can kind of talk about in a second. Basically, what typically happens in these situations is if a deal is large enough, um, they have to file documents to the FTC, which our sources told us they did. They filed hundreds of documents and data points. And then uh, if a suit is imminent, usually there are depositions before that happens. No depositions happen in this case. 
Um, and uh, the company was alerted to this via tweet. I will say the FTC initially didn't comment on this story. They did get back to us today saying that they followed typical practice by notifying the company after the fact. That being said, our sources say this was unusual to not have any inkling um, that they would be coming for them to sue to block this virtual reality deal. What is this signal about the FTC's approach on future cases? Yeah, it's a bit of a different approach now under um, Chairperson Lena Khan. You'll remember Khan is a um, a Biden appointee um, who was basically brought into the agency that is meant to uh, enforce antitrust laws, and she's taken a pretty aggressive approach. This suit in and of itself um, makes kind of a, a little-used argument um, called a nascent competition claim that basically means that um, they are suing to block this deal on the future potential of this small and growing industry um, and they've alleged that Meta's acquisition of the uh, of within and its app Supernatural can actually tamp down competition because it doesn't give the tech giant the opportunity to use its resources to create more competition in this space. So a lot of unique things um, happening with this case for sure, but it all alludes to uh, this kind of more aggressive posturing of Khan and the Democratic commissioners on the FTC against big tech companies. I spoke with Congressman David Cicilline yesterday and asked him about Lena Khan and her approach and this uh, lawsuit in particular. Some critics have said this is such a small company. Why is the FTC bothering with, bothering with this? Of course, Meta has said the deal would increase competition. Take a listen to what uh, Representative Cicilline had to say. I don't think we can take any representation made by Meta or Facebook or Mark Zuckerberg seriously. Time and time again, they've been found to be engaging in anti-competitive behaviors. He went on to argue how much Meta and Facebook in particular are anti-competitive and how supportive he is of Lena Khan's approach. You know, of course, that's just one lawmaker. But what do we know about the support that Lena Khan has in Congress to continue yeah, this route? You'll remember the House came out with a 2020 report um, basically pointing out that Meta alone had acquired more than 100 smaller companies in the decades prior. And this within case is the only time the FTC has actually sued preemptively to stop one of those deals. Uh, for folks like Ciceline, I know they might be looking at things like the um, ongoing back and forth that Meta still has regarding the Instagram and WhatsApp acquisitions. Um, that issue is also with the FTC from Lena Khan's predecessor. Um, so I think that folks on um, uh, who take that kind of approach that that he was talking through there think that the FTC perhaps hasn't done enough on the antitrust side to make sure that these um, giant tech companies aren't basically hoovering up everyone out there to either tamp down or assure that they have um, what they said in, in this lawsuit is a monopoly on a potential future market. All right, Alex Parinka, thank you for your reporting on this. Of course, we'll continue to follow. Now, moving on to the world of cybersecurity. Shares of Palo Alto Networks soared as much as 12% Tuesday after the network security company reported strong quarterly results, saying it expects sales to increase by at least 25% 
in fiscal year 2023, but can the cybersecurity landscape, will the cyber landscape sustain its growth? To talk about all that and more is Palo Alto Network CEO Nikesh Arora. Nikesh, great to have you back with us as always. So look, uh, very positive earnings report, a beat, uh, good forecast. You seem to be bucking the trend because we've heard a lot of bad news from other tech companies. How so? I don't know what I don't know, Emily. Maybe I don't know something. But uh, you know, we're seeing noise. We're not seeing enough signal out there telling us that uh, there is impending doom. Look, we see inflation. We see macroeconomic trends. We saw a version of this two years ago with the pandemic. People thought that the floor was going to fall away from under us. All went to zero dollars. Revenues vanished for companies. And we seem to have powered through. So I don't think this one is as bad as that when it was two years ago. Do you expect demand to keep up, though, or could companies tighten their belts over the next uh, few quarters, and could that impact how much software uh, and cybersecurity services they want to buy? You know, it was interesting. I've been talking to investors all day and a whole bunch of market commentators about our stock and what we see in the market. And the pandemic set about a series of transformations in technology because companies saw that they were wanting in many areas. They're E-commerce infrastructure was not up to snuff, which they had to upgrade because they're trying to sell everything on the web. Uh, their customer interaction mechanisms were not in place because every customer wanted to interact with them digitally because they didn't want to touch people or see people anymore. So a lot of technology transformation projects started in the midst of the pandemic, even a whole bunch of the cloud transformation So, and hybrid work. So if you add all that up, we unleashed a series of technology transformations and Couple that with the tremendous amount of cyber activity we've seen and the awareness of that. So we're seeing a tailwind for security, which is, I think, more secular and might get dented on the margin, but I think it's still one of the safest and strongest sectors to be in. Overall, how would you describe the threat landscape right now? Obviously, there's this ongoing war on Ukraine, but the potential, you know, huge cyber apocalypse that, you know, some were warning about with that hasn't necessarily materialized. There's ongoing tension with China. Of course, how, how, do you, how do you see these global factors impacting the threats? Well, look, I think if you step back and look at it, you know, every one of our companies has become digital. It's, uh, and every time you have digitally enabled businesses, you open the door for people to be able to enter from wherever they want. On top of that, we made everybody work from home. So suddenly your attack surface is what we call it, suddenly expanded. Every employee's home is a potential attack vector. Everybody's laptop is every Every interaction that you have with your customers digitally is a potential way of you getting hacked. And we've seen that. We've seen that in ransomware. We've seen that in business email compromise. 70% of the incidents last year were driven from business email compromise or ransomware. Ransomware spam, you know, sums have gone to a million dollars per ransomware event. Every four hours, there's a ransomware leak on some website somewhere. So clearly, this is not just a nation state threat. It also is an economic opportunity for small you know, hackers or hacker groups to you know, build consortia to start making sort of making these economic demands on a bunch of people from a ransomware perspective. So you're seeing the threat landscape get more sort of adverse. At the same time, you know, nation states are looking at preparedness because of the Ukraine situation. See, am I ready to withstand an attack? We haven't seen a cybersecurity apocalypse because we've actually had real lives lost and devastation caused in Ukraine. However, do not underestimate the amount of cyber activities that's gone down in terms of trying to bring the Ukrainian websites down and you know, 
uh, white activists, uh, white hacktivists going after Russian sites because they don't like what Russia is doing. So you are seeing a tremendous amount of cyber activity, activity we haven't seen before. There's a new whistleblower in social media, and I'm just dying to get your thoughts on this. This former employee of Twitter, former head of security there, claiming negligent security policies, you know, egregious deficiencies in how they're handling personal data that they don't know how many bots there even are. You know, there's been some pushback on this. You know, this sounds like something that could be happening within a lot of companies. What's your take yeah, on I don't this? Know th I don't know the particulars of the situation at Twitter. I read about it probably just... Uh as recently as you did. I don't know what's happening there. I will say that one of the things we've been canvassing for and hoping for is more scrutiny and more awareness at boards about the threats of cybersecurity. I think cybersecurity is the biggest business continued risk in the 21st century, and I don't think boards are well prepared to understand the magnitude, understand the impact that can be had, and really to be able to assess whether their individual company is up to snuff in those capabilities. So I think it's, it's a need of the hour. I think uh, the SEC is looking at various mechanisms to be able to create sort of regulation around how people have to disclose cyber activity and cyber readiness just the way we do in audit committees and finance, et cetera. Well, there's also this quote, number that we've been hearing over and again, over again 600,000 open cyber jobs. I mean, you mentioned it's the responsibility of boards, but you know, is it is it the government who should be stepping in here to help fill these jobs? Is it companies? Actually, I, I heard three and a half million, Emily, so mm. I'm glad if it's 600,000. <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot, yes. There's a lot of jobs and you know, we're almost at full employment, so yes, we need to make sure that keep ample trained people. I think this is a double, dual-edged problem. This is not a singular problem of finding 600,000 cybersecurity enthusiasts or professionals. I think the fundamental problem is we have not applied ample automation and security, which requires a bunch of clean data, requires a bunch of integration, a bunch for platformization for cybersecurity, which is what we're trying to do and a whole bunch of others are. I think the only way we solve the cybersecurity problem is if we can build AI that actually stops these attacks whilst they're happening. The today's model is not going to work. Today's model is we something happens, we collect all the data in large data lakes, and then we have people go attack, hack them, to, sorry, look at them to see what actually happened and manually try to find the problem. I think those days are over. It requires a lot more automation. We think we can solve the majority of that 600,000 or 3.5 million people problem by doing that. Yet, we also need more cybersecurity trained professionals. Hmm. Now, so curious for your thoughts on this last one here. You, of course, were Masayoshi Sun's number two long before he launched the Vision Fund. Now we know uh, he's lost tens of billions of dollars on some of these tech investments. What do you make of this and what do you think the legacy of Masa and SoftBank will be in spite of this? Well, look, you know, Masa is a resilient individual. Um, he's been through this before. He went from boom to bust in the last internet uh, bust. and. He sort of reinvented himself, and the one thing I loved about him is that he has immense appetite for risk, and his appetite for risk and his ability to forget his failures is what all of Silicon Valley teaches us. So hopefully he can recover from that and go build it back himself. And I think last time he was down to a billion dollars. I think he's a lot more this time than last time. So I have faith in his ability to, res to resurrect himself, but yes, I do think he got a bunch of companies at the wrong end. All right, Nikesh Aurora, CEO of Palo Alto Networks. Good to have you back, Nikesh. Thank you for stopping nice by. All right, coming up, how the crypto winter coupled with an energy crunch is impacting Bitcoin mining. More on that next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? 
Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash GreenFestival. Time now for our crypto report, and the usually volatile Bitcoin has gotten stuck trading within a narrow range ahead of the Fed's annual Jackson Hole meeting later this week, covering around $21,600. Mike Alfred, board member of the Bitcoin miner Iris Energy and the crypto-focused investment firm Eagle Brook Advisors, talked to Kaylee Lines on the Bloomberg Crypto Show earlier to talk about the market's impact on Bitcoin mining. It's certainly been a difficult uh, time, and I was with a bunch of the miners in Miami about a month ago now, and you know the, the mood's a little darker. Uh, the Bitcoin price being under twenty thousand obviously isn't good for anyone because profitability tends to flip negative uh, for a lot of the large miners around those levels. Um, you know the cost of machines has gone down though, so if you're a buyer of machines here, uh, you know you're getting a much better price than you were a year ago. Um, and energy prices, while they're going up, they could certainly um, you know be held down a little bit by by macro uncertainty, at least in the U.S., where there's sort of an oversupply uh, of energy. So I actually believe, just based on the hash ribbons, which is a metric that looks at the 30-day moving average of the global hash rate uh, relative to the 60-day, it just flipped positive uh, again in the last week, right after being negative since sort of uh, some point during July. Um, I actually think the capitulation phase is over. There were miners that were literally buying Bitcoin at 40,000, and then they puked that Bitcoin back into the market at 20. Mm -hmm. um, I think that speaks to you know the general strategy that people should have around their balance sheet here. I think there's two strategies that sort of work well. One is just selling your Bitcoin every day, the way Iris Energy does, and and that way you can grow uh, just out of cash flow. Or uh, like HUD-8, just holding the Bitcoin indefinitely, but using equity and debt strategically and not taking on too much debt, and then growing at a reasonable speed uh, so that you don't get caught at the wrong part of the cycle flat-footed. We think that in mid-September, the merge may finally happen. Ethereum will move from proof of work to proof of stake. How does the upcoming merge affect your view on how you want to be investing in, in these kinds of companies? Well, I think the, the Bitcoin only, um, you know, miners are always going to be a good bet 
Because if you believe in a decentralized, a truly decentralized monetary system, it will not function uh, properly under a proof of stake model. So as much as Ethereum could be an interesting currency for doing NFTs or mm. right, do, doing DeFi or whatever, um, it's not going to be the same thing that Bitcoin is if, if it moves off of proof of work. And so uh, I don't think it changes anything with the thesis. Like if, if people want to speculate uh, on NFTs, right, that that doesn't bother me one bit. I'm a free market capitalist. But if you want to own a truly hard asset with a supply cap that cannot be disrupted, that cannot be sort of taken over uh, by any one party, you kind of need to stick with proof of work. And therefore, I think Bitcoin mining, at least uh, again in North America, has a great future. Mike Alfred there, Iris Energy and Eagle Brook Advisors with Kaylee Lines. Workers are fighting executives, pushing for a full and even part-time return to the office. The latest example coming from Apple. More than 200 Apple employees have signed a position demanding the company continue its flexible work policies instead of its planned return to the office September 5th and requiring company uh, employees to come in two to three days a week. Uh, they want hybrid schedules with direct reports rather than a corporate blanket policies. This comes at a time when the term quiet quitting is making the rounds on social media. The idea is not that employees actually quit, but instead do the bare minimum that the job requires to maintain a healthy work-life balance. Here to discuss, Daniel Chait, co-founder and CEO of Greenhouse, which offers recruiting software as a service. So does the Apple story resonate with you based on what you're seeing from your clients, Daniel? Yeah, you know, we've heard a lot of companies who went, you know, in the pandemic, they all went remote and distributed. And then now when things are changing again, they want their employees back in the office because they think that being there and being able to see those employees somehow equals culture or somehow equals Productivity. And I think what's interesting about the Apple story is what the employees are saying is we're being productive, we're giving our best, and the way we can be the most productive is by is by working in this more flexible way. So it's it's kind of you hear it in the same sentence as this kind of quiet quitting conversation, but it's actually to me more a story of the power of employees to create value and the role of the company in either helping them do that or or trying to change how they do that. Well, and you'll see whether Apple acquiesces here in any way, but, you know, does it seem that the pendulum is swinging back to the office and executives or those who want workers back to the office are having more power than they did a year ago when we were, you know, just starting to work through Omicron? We'll see. You know, look, the pendulum has been swinging for decades in, in favor of employees who have more power and more control than ever before. And so companies are finding themselves in this position of having to be people first and, 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 and taking that on as, a, as an opportunity and as a strategy has been very successful. Now, some companies kind of or leaders want it to be the way it was or or somehow try to return to that. I think they're I think some of them are finding themselves stuck and, and you know, ultimately value is created by talent and people. If you're as a leader not able to put those people in the best position to create value, then you know, you've got a real you've got a real problem. And so look, I think there are some companies like you know, Apple who have a huge investment in real estate and a big state of the art office and they wanna position that as an asset and as a strength to those employees. And some employees want that. For some people, no doubt, getting up, going to an office, being with other people is really attractive and really helpful to them. But for others, it's not. And so I think what you're more seeing is 
you know, multiple different kind of talent pools developing where some talent wants to work remotely, other talent wants to work in the office, and companies are kind of having to choose which part of the talent pool they want to play in. But in all cases, they have to choose based on what the talent wants. It's, it's the people first that's driving so these business decisions. How, how is this impacting hiring and retention? I mean, are you seeing a lot of people quit, a lot of people voting with their feet? Well, look, unemployment is still at, at historically, you know, very low levels, and I think it's it's easier than ever to get a job, right? You know, people can just swipe left on you and swipe left on someone else, and they're working at a new company. They don't even have to get a new, you know, commute. Um, and so what we're seeing is, yeah, people are resigning and, you know, in, in higher numbers than they had been, but people are getting hired faster than ever. And I think we've got almost two job openings still for every one job seeker in the market today. So it's still a talent market and companies are doing their best just to try to keep up and compete. Let's talk about quiet quitting and this idea of just doing the bare minimum, not going to try too hard, not going to overexert myself because, you know, you know what, I'm just going to do my job. I'm just going to do my job. Um, what, what impact is this having? Yeah, look, there's nothing wrong with doing your job and, and not, you know, ruining your life in order to, in order to achieve it. Um, uh, but at the same time, you know, at the point where it kind of moves over into this area of, of sort of, you know, sort of quitting or taking advantage of the system, you know, it becomes a problem. I think what this has shown is that for many companies, they don't really have a great way of measuring what a good employee actually is. They don't actually know what output or what quality really looks like. And so they use this thing of how long are you logged into your laptop or are you sitting in your cubicle instead of knowing which of my employees are actually great and what do I do to inspire discretionary effort. I think the companies who are people first focus on those questions, um, you know, have an advantage and, and they don't have this problem of, of employees dropping out, uh, you know, without telling them. All right. Well, uh, certainly lots to continue to follow. Greenhouse co-founder and CEO Daniel Chait, appreciate you stopping by and giving Thanks us your so take. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Coming up later this week, Wednesday, do not miss my conversation with Microsoft Gaming CEO Phil Spencer. And check out our podcast. You can find it anywhere you get your podcast, Studio 1.0 and Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.